Let's now turn to God's holy word. We'll begin reading from Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 16, and then Genesis chapter 17, 1 through 7. And then we turn to the letter of Paul to the Ephesians chapter 5. Revelation 21, I read with you just before we profess our faith in the triune God. So we won't read that again. So Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. I read God's word. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So far, reading from Genesis 3, let's turn to Genesis chapter 17. Chapter 17 of Genesis, the Lord God comes and makes a covenant, renews a covenant with Abraham. We'll read the first seven verses. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. 
I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And then let's turn to Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, verse 21 through 27. That's what we're going to read in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. And therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And you might just look also in chapter 6, verse 1, where Paul writes to the children. He says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and that you, and that you may live long on the earth. So far, a reading from God's holy word. This afternoon, we will be reflecting on that which we confess in Lord's Day 25 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 25. So let us read this Lord's Day together. This afternoon I will be looking at the aspect of the sacraments as a means by which God establishes a relationship together with His people. Lord willing, I'm back here again in two weeks. I will be dealing with the sacraments from the perspective of what it means, what's, how God uses signs in Scripture, and then also how the signs are worked out in the sacraments by which He confirms the promises that He makes to His people. So this afternoon we'll deal with it from the aspect of that God enters into a relationship with His people. So Lord's Day 25, there we confess this, Since then faith alone makes us share in Christ and all His benefits. Where does this faith come from? From the Holy Spirit, who works it in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel and strengthens it by the use of the sacraments. What are the sacraments? The sacraments are holy, visible signs and seals, they are instituted by God so that by their use He might the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel. And this is the promise, that God graciously grants us forgiveness of sins and everlasting life because of the one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. Are both the Word and the sacraments and intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground for our salvation? Yes, indeed. The Holy Spirit teaches us in the gospel and assures us by the sacraments that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. How many sacraments has Christ instituted in the new covenant? And two, holy baptism and the holy supper.
congregation of our Lord in Jesus Christ. So now we turn to Lord's Day 25. We are moving on from where the Catechism talks about our justification by faith alone. And now we move on to the sacraments, which are in the New Testament, baptism and the Lord's Supper, by which the Lord also confirms our justification, by which He confirms our salvation, the promise of redemption that He gives to us in Christ Jesus. And so you can say that in His Word, God speaks to us, and He speaks to us about His promise of salvation in Jesus Christ. We confess it is only by faith that that we can even come to accept those promises that God gives to us, promise of life, promise of salvation. But God does not only tell us about His promises, God also gives us visible signs because He wants to remind us about what He will do for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. You can say that these these signs that come from God are God's guarantee that He will keep His promise, a promise which He says, I will give you eternal life in my glorious kingdom. But before we take a look at the signs themselves, we first need to understand the context in which God gives these signs to us. So, for example, someone says, well, I believe in the Lord Jesus. And then they come and they ask that they might be baptized. And it happens so often that, especially in our, modern, in our Christian world today, that people think about baptism simply as, as a sign that they are indeed saved. A sign that guarantees that their sins have now been washed away and now they have eternal life with God. Now, indeed, baptism is a symbol in which God promises that He will wash away our sins with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we need to understand, beloved, is that God says so much more in our baptism. Baptism is God's sign to us that He is entering into a new, into a living relationship with us as His people. It's not just a a sign that says, my sins are now forgiven. Well, that's important. Without that, it would be meaningless. But it means more than that. Because my sins are forgiven, therefore God says, what I do now for you is I restore you again to my family. You now belong to the family of God. And so God uses this sign to, to show that He's entering into a living relationship with us as His people. And the Lord refers to that relationship as a covenant relationship. Therefore, today, we will focus our attention on understanding what a covenant relationship with God really is. Because if you do not understand how God lives with you in this covenant relationship, beloved, then baptism and also Lord's Supper will not really make any sense to you at all. That's also the reason, I believe, why there's so much confusion in the Christian world today around the whole question of infant baptism versus adult baptism. We do not really understand what baptism really is about, what God has really given to us, what God is revealing to us, and then there will indeed be all kinds of confusion around that question. And therefore, we'll listen this afternoon to God's Word as we confess it under under this theme, sacraments, 
are signs of the covenant through which God builds a relationship with his people. So our theme, sacraments are signs of the covenant relationship, or actually the covenant through which God builds a relationship with his people. Under that theme, we'll look at three things. First of all, we'll look at God's covenant with his people, his covenant with us. Secondly, God's covenant as fulfilled by Christ. And thirdly, we'll look at God's covenant and families and the relationship between the two. The first question we ask, that we ask is, so how does God build a relationship with mankind? I'm sure that every one of you has different kinds of relationships uh, in, in your life. No, there is the kind of relationship in which you know something about someone. Maybe you read about a person's, about a celebrity. You might read about it in, in, in a magazine or a newspaper, but more likely today, uh, social media is a means by which you will know all about the intimate details of uh, some celebrity. Right? We live in that time, you can say, where, where we seem to have that intimate relationship with all kinds of celebrities and people because we can read everything about them on their social, uh, their, their social web pages. But you never really meet that person. On the one hand, we feel that we have an intimate relationship, and yet we have no relationship at all because it's all one-sided. So that's the one kind of relationship. There's also what we may call a barely there relationship, which you might just so happen to, to meet somebody uh, when you're busy somewhere. And you, you might have time to have a nice conversation, and, and then you never see that person again, and you've felt like you know, you've connected with that person, but, but that's the end of the relationship. There may be casual relationships. There's somebody that you meet uh, from time to, to time and you get to, to know them, and, but there are really no commitments uh, at all. There's no expectation that you will develop a deeper relationship with that person. And then there are relationships that you may have with those that you consider to be good friends. But even those relationships can be very fluid. There comes a time that you begin to lose touch with a certain friend and you begin to build other relationships and you have other friendships. There are work relationships. The relationship that you have with your boss likely is going to be different from the relationship that you have with your coworker. And then, and then there are the deeper relationships. You think of marriage. Between a husband and wife, there is probably the deepest relationship that's, that's possible, or being a family relationship in which between the relationship between parents and, and children there should indeed be indeed very, very deep kind of relationships and lasting relationships. So if, if the reality is, is that, that we have different kinds of relationships with all kinds of different kinds of people, then what kind of relationship does God build with us as his people? So, so often people have the idea that, you know, the Lord God, God is way up there in the heavens. And from heaven, he just kind of looks down on this world. And he might kind of see what's going on here on this earth and see what are, what are the people doing? And we may even think in our minds, there are many who think that way, well, if God sees people who are doing evil and who are not obeying his will, uh, then God is angry with them and God will punish them. On the other hand, if he sees other kinds of people, perhaps in the church, he sees good people, he sees decent people, he sees people who, who try to live good lives, maybe lives according to his law, then, then God has you know, kind of a good heart towards them and, and God will be kind to those people. But you know, there's really no relationship here between God and, and, and people in that scenario. We just think about God being up there. 
And all we have to do is we just have to live a decent life. And if we live a decent life before God, and God's not going to be angry with us. But you know, beloved, such a God, if you think of God in that way, such a God is a distant God. He's a God that you do not really know. That's a God that you cannot really warm up to. That's a God that you really cannot love with your whole heart. And understand this. That's not the kind of relationship that God wants with you as His people. What God desires is a close bond of fellowship and friendship with you. You get a sense of what God really desires from the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, think of verse 8. There we're told that after Adam and Eve had fallen into sin, then they heard the sound of God as He walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and Eve, they hid themselves from God. And God calls out to them, Adam and Eve, and He says, Where are you? Clear from, from this that God was often in the habit of coming into the garden uh, to, to walk and to talk with Adam and, uh, and Eve. There was this deep, this intimate bond of fellowship between God and, uh, and Adam and Eve, mankind. That's also the very reason why Adam and Eve, why they hid themselves from, from, from God after they had fallen into sin. Why? Because, because they were ashamed. Ashamed of what they had done against God who was, with whom they were in such a close relationship. They realized they had broken that wonderful relationship with the Lord, their God. They've been unfaithful to Him. You see, that relationship that Adam and Eve had carried certain expectations. There was a deep understanding that God was going to provide for everything that Adam and Eve would ever need here in the garden. And Adam and Eve, in turn, they could always look to the Lord God for everything that they had need of in their life. And at first... First, they trusted God for everything. God, God never disappointed them. God never failed them. God in His love continually provided them with everything they had need of. And that relationship between God and Adam and Eve was not built on some vague feelings that they might have for one another that might just fade at a certain time. No, God set out this relationship in a covenant that He made with Adam and Eve. That covenant relationship was symbolized with two signs, the sign of the tree of life and the sign of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life is a symbol of God's promise, in which God promises mankind. He says, you can look to me for everything that you need in your life. I will provide for you everything. There will be nothing lacking in your life. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a sign that if they did not look to God for everything, if they became self-centered and decided that they wanted to make life work on their own terms, should they desire to eat of that fruit because they were not content with what God had given to them, namely everything, should they eat of that fruit, they would then destroy the relationship with the Lord their God because they would no longer depend completely and entirely on the Lord for what they needed in their life. So you notice, beloved, that what Adam and Eve had with the Lord God was not just some loose, casual relationship. No, there was this clear expectation in that relationship. 
It was expected that Adam and Eve would be faithful to the Lord God and the Lord God would be faithful to them. They were to care for each other. They were to love each other. And that would all be expressed in the way that God and man would live together here in the garden. Now, scripture is often compares this covenant relationship that with, uh, to, to, with God uh, to that of a marriage relationship. Because you know that, humanly speaking, that marriage is the deepest, it's the most intimate bond that human beings are able to experience. Marriage is not just uh, two people living together uh, casually, although some marriages might need to feel that way, but that's not the intent of marriage. It's a relationship in, in which husband and wife make a promise to each other. And there are certain expectations that we have for one another in that relationship. Paul compares marriage uh, to the bond that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ in Ephesians chapter 5. God himself often expresses this bond with these words. He says, they, referring to his covenant people, will be my people, and I, I will be their God. So you hear God speak this way when, when he makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 7. There God speaks these words to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I will establish an, ever co- an everlasting covenant between me and you, Abraham, and your descendants after you for generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. You see, Abraham and his descendants, his children, are not to think in a vague way about uh, some God up there who looks down on what is happening here on this earth and just kind of casually taking an interest in what's happening. No, Abraham, God says to Abraham, I am the Lord your God and I will always be near to you and to your family and to your descendants after you. God is the God who comes and says, I claim you as my very own people. And I expect that you will always look up to me as the Lord your God. Later God will say to the people of Israel as they're wandering through the wilderness in Exodus 29 verse 45. He says, then I will dwell among the Israelites and I will be their God. I will dwell among my people. God says, I'm not a God who's going to be far away. God says, I will come to my people Israel because I have made you my very own. God's desire, his greatest desire is that he may dwell with his people. That means, beloved, he wants to live with his people. He wants to, his people to also to live with him. That's why in the Old Testament, God commanded Israel that they should build a tabernacle in the wilderness. And later, they build a temple for him in the city of Jerusalem. Now, in the Old Testament, this promise to Abraham is fulfilled in a much more wonderful way. John, in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, says, The word that is Jesus became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. And the word dwelling is used in the Old Testament for the tabernacle, where God dwelled, where God lived in the midst of the people of Israel. And so in the Old Testament, God says, I have made you my people, Israel, I have made you my people. You are so special to me that I will dwell in your midst. I will be there among you, there in the temple. If you want to go to visit the Lord God and worship the Lord God, you know where you can find him. I will be there in the temple where I live among you. In other words, God is reminding his people of the relationship that he has entered into with them. 
But the reality, beloved, is that in the temple there's still this distance between God and His people. God is in the most holy place and His people are in the outer court. God wants more. God wants to have an even more intimate relationship. He wants, and then that happens when He goes and He sends His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Because there, in His very own Son, God becomes or comes to us in the flesh. Jesus Christ comes and He walks among the people of Israel as God once walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Today, beloved, that means that we know the Lord Jesus in, in, a, in an intimate way as the Jews could not yet fully understand that. We know the Lord Jesus also by what He has said to us, what He's taught us in the Gospels. We know what our Lord Jesus came to do for us. And through the life of the Lord Jesus, the Lord God now brings us into an even greater and a more glorious relationship. In Christ, as we saw this morning, we have seen His glory, the glory of the Father who sent Him. That, that is the covenant bond that we enjoy with the Lord God today. In the Old Testament, it was really wonderful, wonderful that, that, Israel, uh, that God chose Israel to be His very own people so that they could say, He is the Lord our God. He's the God who will take care of us. But beloved, the reality is that today is you have seen the glory of God in His Son, Jesus Christ, in an even greater way. In Christ, we now are fully assured that God is indeed, He is near us. He is the God who has sent His own Son to this world, and His Son has come and He has bought us with His very own blood. Right? He has made us His people so that He is our God for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, as wonderful as that is and as blessed as we are today, beloved, that's not yet the relationship that God really wants. God wants even more of that relationship with us. God reveals what His end goal is for us as His covenant people in Revelation chapter 21 verse 3. Because there John sees the new heavens and the new earth. And he heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and He will dwell with them. They will be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. Beloved, this is what God is aiming at already in the covenant that He made with Adam and Eve after the fall into sin. That's what He's aiming at when He made a covenant with Noah and again with Abraham and again with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. And He makes a covenant with you today in the New Testament times. In His covenant, God promises, yes, He will be our God who loves us and who truly cares for us. He looks at us as a people, a people whom He loves for he bought us with the very blood of his very own son. But beloved, in that covenant that he made with you, God is not happy with the way things are yet today. Well, the Lord is working for something better, something more glorious. He's working for the day when he will make his eternal dwelling place among us as his people that we will see him face to face. Then God Himself will be with us and He will be our eternal God and our Father and we will know Him in a way that we cannot even 
begin to imagine what that would be like even today. It will be a perfect relationship in which the Lord God promises. He says, I will wipe away every tear, one in which there will be no more death, be no more cry, no more pain, when everything will be made new. Then we will live securely in the love of our God and Father forever and ever. How's that possible? How's it possible after Adam and Eve rebelled against the Lord God that we could ever again hope for such a restored relationship with God? Did we not break the covenant that we had with God? Did we not in our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebel against the Lord God? Do we not deserve God's eternal wrath and condemnation? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Mankind has destroyed that wonderful relationship with God. And yet what does God do? God comes and God renews His covenant with us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Paul describes what God does for us in a most succinct way in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, where he writes these words. He says, For as, and for as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. What Paul does, he contrasts the first Adam with the second Adam who is Jesus Christ. Through the first Adam, Paul says, death comes. Through the second Adam, he says, life comes. Well, we already saw that in the beginning, God entered into a covenant relationship with Adam and Eve. God promised He would be their God. God says, I'll be God who will love you. I will provide for you everything that you need. And I will live with you forever there in the garden. The only condition in that covenant is that they would be faithful to the Lord God and that they would always serve the Lord out of love. And therefore the Lord God said to them, everything in the garden is yours with one exception. You shall not eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, children, right, you know the story. You know very well. What Adam and Eve do, they ate the fruit that was forbidden by God. And they were being tempted by the devil. Adam destroyed that wonderful relationship that he had with God by, be, by disobeying the Lord God. That's the reason why Adam and Eve hid from God when God came walking to, to see them through the garden, walking through the garden to see them. And they, they felt great shame. And they could no longer face God because of that, because of that guilty conscience. And what does God do? God in His justice, He casts Adam and Eve. He casts them out of the garden. And now, they had the risk, and now they had to live the rest of their life under the curse and under the wrath of God. You know, beloved, that, that death at the beginning was not just physical death. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, they brought death to the relationship of the Lord, their God. An intimate relationship with God was destroyed. Now they lived all alone in this world. And the thing to notice here, beloved, is that this did not just affect Adam, it didn't just affect Eve, it also affected their families, it affected their children. Adam, as the head of the human family, he brought judgment of God upon all of mankind. And therefore, Paul says that in Adam all die. But, mankind, but God did not leave mankind without hope. He comes and he renews his covenant with Adam and Eve, 
renews the covenant with men such as Noah and Abraham and the people of Israel. And we speak about these covenants, we speak about them as the, covenants of, the covenant of grace. In this covenant, God promises, I will restore the relationship that I have with my people. God comes and He brings to life the relationship that was dead. He brings that relationship back to life again. In this covenant of grace, the Lord also reveals how He will restore that relationship with us. He says to to the woman through the the serpent, He says, I will will give to to you, the woman, He'll give to you a seed. I'll give you a child. A great descendant who will come and who will again restore the relationship with me. Paul makes clear here in Romans that, or in Corinthians, uh, that it is in Christ that all are made alive. As Adam was dead, uh, as Adam was the head of all mankind, so Jesus Christ now becomes the head of a new humanity. So that all those who are in Christ will receive life in the family and in the kingdom of God. Christ as a second Adam, he does what the first Adam could not do. That is, Christ fulfilled the covenant with God. Adam could not keep the covenant. Adam disobeyed the covenant when he became disobedient, but Christ Christ kept it perfectly. Christ did not pay the penalty of the covenant, or Adam could not pay the penalty of the covenant when he broke it. He couldn't give his life in order to pay for the sins that he had done. Christ, Christ was able to pay the penalty by his death on the cross. And beloved, that's what the sacrament of baptism and Lord's Supper teaches us in a visible way. Lord Jesus is the one who by His death and through His resurrection has restored that covenant relationship we have with God. And therefore all those who are in Christ by faith will be made alive. This is true for believers both in the Old and the New Testament. You know, just as Abraham could not receive the covenant promises of God apart from his faith in Jesus Christ, think of what you read in Hebrews chapter 11. So we, today, we cannot receive the covenant promises of God apart from our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only in Christ that our relationship with God is again restored. Only in Christ are we again made alive to God. One of the wonderful things is that God always works His program of salvation. He always does that through families. As Adam's actions had consequences for the whole human family, so we see that God enters into a covenant with His people. The covenant is made with that person with whom He enters into a covenant together with His family. Right, that's clear already in the Old Testament where God made His covenant with Abraham and with His children who come after Him. But, you know, there are many today in the Christian world today who question whether the children of the New Testament belong to uh, the covenant with Christ and belong to the family of God. So the question that we need to ask ourselves this afternoon is, so what is the status of your children? What's the status of your families before God? Your children, do your family, do they belong to God or not? You see, this is an important question because it's going to determine how you're going to look at your children and how you will teach your children as you see them grow up. And it will answer the question whether they should also receive the sign of the covenant and baptism 
or not. Well, there's no question that God considered the children of, of Israel in the to be his covenant children in the Old Testament. Right? God made his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, and there he commanded Abraham to circumcise himself and every male children in his house at the, at the age of eight days. We know that in Israel, all the male children were circumcised at eight days of age. In Israel, it was understood that God made his covenant with the families in Israel. In, in Israel. And so when Joshua, when Joshua encourages the people to be faithful and they're in the promised land, and then he says to, to the people in Joshua 24, 15, just before he dies, he says, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Joshua and his children belong to God, and therefore Joshua commits himself, and he commits his whole family to faithful, serves, to faithful service of the Lord God. Not only does Joshua speak about his children as belonging to God, but, but God himself also claims all the children of Israel. He claims them as his very own. Remember in Ezekiel chapter 16, there's a story where, where God is extremely upset and angry with his people in Israel. Why? Because they have just sacrificed their children to Moloch. Moloch was the god of Moab. Yes, they killed their children and offered their children as sacrifices on the altar to Moab, uh, to, to Molech. And then God says in Ezekiel 16, verse 20, He says, You slaughtered my children, and you sacrificed them to idols. There you hear, God is so angry with His people. Why? Because He says, These are my children. These are my very own. They belong to me. What have you done to my children? How do you dare to take these little children and offer them uh, to the idols? Because those children, every single one of them, they're dear, they're precious in my eyes. Oh, how our God was so furious with His people at that time. Well, beloved, God's reaction here helps us to understand Christ's reaction then. Also in Mark chapter 10, verse 13 and following. Remember the situation where the people, they were bringing the little children to the Lord Jesus. And the disciples, what were they doing? Well, they were, they were rebuking the people for bringing the little children to the Lord Jesus. He doesn't have time for all of this. And when Jesus understood what was happening, and then we read that he was indignant. Strong language for he was terribly angry with his disciples. And he says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And they brought the children. And Jesus took those little children in his arms. And he blessed them. Those little children, beloved. Christ understood those little children to be God's children. They were his children. They were precious in the eyes of the Lord God. Why? Because God also made a covenant with them. Jesus is thinking here also about his own work. The fact that he has come. He didn't just come to save the adults. No, he came to give his life for these covenant children of God. Therefore, he says, do not hinder them from coming to me. And there are many passages in the New Testament that speaks about the place of children in the covenant. 
Already at the very beginning of the New Testament church on the day of Pentecost, Peter says to the people in Acts 2 or 39 that the promise, that is the promise of the covenant, is for you and for your children. That promise is the promise of forgiveness. It's the promise that God will also give to our children His Holy Spirit. Peter included the children of believers then also here in the new, in the new covenant that was based on the very blood of Jesus Christ. And therefore when Paul writes to the believers in, he, in, in, in his letter to, uh, to the believers in, in Ephesus, he doesn't only address the adults in that letter, he also addresses the children in the church, which is why I read from those few words also from chapter 6. And so he, he begins the letter by addressing the congregation of God's holy people. Right, he's right into God's covenant people there in Ephesus. And in that very letter, he also addresses the very children of the church. Why? Because they too belong to God. And therefore, he commands the children. In chapter 6, verse 1, he says to the children, Obey your parents in the Lord. And then he reminds them of this in verse 2. He says that this Old Testament commandment is also relevant for you, children. He says this is the first commandment with a promise. That if you obey your parents, it may go well with you. What Paul says, Paul says, covenant promise that God gave to the children of Israel long ago is also a covenant promise that the Lord God gives to, to you children today. Because you too are God's covenant children. You belong to God. So Paul writes to them as children of God. So children... You might want to listen. Understand this. As children, get the Lord God also looks, upon, looks at you as his child. And he says, you, you too are my children. You belong to me. That means that the Lord is your God. That you are his children. And all the promises that he made to your father and your mother are promises that he also gives to you. You're just as important in the eyes of God as your dad and as your mom. And what does God want most from you as his children? He wants to love you. And he wants you to love him. He wants to have that wonderful relationship with, with you. He doesn't only want your parents, but he also wants you to look up to him as your father. That you look up to him in faith and you trust that your father in heaven is a father who loves you. A father who will take care of you. And that you, that you then also turn your heart to your father in heaven. You love him with your whole being, with your whole self. But God says, you are my children. And I am your God. I'm your God today and forever, evermore. Amen.